excited to hear from entrepreneurs. Um, I care about health, but, but there's lots of places where society needs to have positive change. And I mean, everything that we use today was invented by an entrepreneur and brought to market. Mm-hmm. And so entrepreneurs are the source of all positive change in our society. So it's great that you're doing this show. They need a lot of help, but they're also the source of everything. Hi, welcome to The Entrepreneur's Doctor. Today, I'm joined by Vic Gatto. He's the founder and CEO of Jumpstart Health Investors. I'm really happy to have him on the show. We'll be hearing all sorts of insights from a VC perspective. And if you're an entrepreneur thinking about entering the health sector, check out the link below where I cover the five steps you need for success when you're entering the health sector. You're one of the most active um, early stage health investors in the States. And what is it about pitching to investors that it has to be such a hard deal and, you know, high pressure, high stakes? Well, I don't think that the, uh, the, the good VCs or VCs that I want to associate with or that I want to work with inside Jumpstart um, try to make it a high pressure set. I mean, there is, of course, there's these TV shows that are, they're trying to create drama and exciting things to watch. The pitches at Jumpstart are not as fun to watch. <laughs> it's much more, I, I think about it as a, just a chance for me to learn about what the entrepreneur is trying to bring out to the world, what problem they're trying to solve. And there are some situations where we can really help and we want to contribute capital and contribute help and assistance, guidance. And there are other times where it's an interesting idea, but it's not something that I know much about or I can really help. Unfortunately, there aren't enough investors, in my opinion. So um, that scarcity relative to the number of entrepreneurs doing great work sort of creates this impression that you have to put your best foot forward and, and you have one chance to get the funding I don't view it like that, um, but I understand it's, it's the founders kind of dream to get this business launched and there just aren't enough capital sources. And so it ends up that, that there's a, they put a lot of pressure on themselves, I think, more than anything. Yeah. And that's a good segue, Vic, into the, the you know, I was going to ask this towards the end, but for me and for, for you as well, I believe it's a really important issue. There's so many entrepreneurs especially younger people entering entrepreneurship these days passionate about their goals and what they want to achieve both for themselves as well as uh, the impact that they want to have but um, many of them are silently oftentimes struggling with mental health as well as physical health issues and it's probably just because of stigma they they feel like they need to be really strong and, and, and leaders for their teams perhaps is there anything that either you have insights on, either from generally your take or perhaps what VCs could be doing to help entrepreneurs, perhaps? Yeah, I think that's a huge issue. I mean, behavioral health uh, in every sector of society is really a, a concerning, uh, really bad growth trajectory. Of just how many people are suffering from behavioral health and how often it goes undiagnosed, unreported. 
but certainly entrepreneurs are in that category. I think the COVID pandemic globally has um, has made that much worse because there's you're isolated. You can't have the social outlets and sort of communal uh, bonding with folks just like like sitting around a pub or uh, going out to a, to a an athletic game. Um, and so that then has people inside and without many outlets and, you know, a lot of anxiety about, about their health, about society in general. So it, it has made everything worse. I think um, one of the really disturbing things is that entrepreneurs kind of feel like they have to be perfect. They, they read, um, you know, various news publications or magazines about entrepreneur stories that seem like it was a straight line up, um, always successful, uh, but that's not the truth. You know, I have been around a lot of startups. I've done three myself, and there are no startups. I don't think there is one in the history of the world that was without challenges and obstacles and hard times that then you fight through and get to success. But unfortunately, the newspapers or the magazines published just a success story, like overnight success. This company went public and is worth, you know, a unicorn, worth a billion, billion U.S. dollars. Right. Um, that hides all the struggles and trials and tribulations that that entrepreneur or that team went through. And it's really sad because it, it makes the entrepreneurs that are out there reading that feel like if I'm having troubles. I'm, I must be doing something wrong. And in fact, that is part of the journey is, is stubbing your toe, making a mistake, learning from it and going on. It can be pretty lonely, I think, to have to pretend you have all the answers to your employees and to your investors when in fact you're trying to figure it out. And so I think to me, it, it's really about peer, peer mentoring, peer advice uh, where Maybe an entrepreneur that is a little bit ahead can talk to a, a peer who's one step behind and say, listen, I went through these same challenges um, in an honest way. And then it's not uh, so threatening for VCs can do that. We try to do that. But unless you have actually been through it, a lot of VCs came out of investment banking or came out of law and they don't have the experience of having to make payroll having to make a product and go sell it. Yeah. And unless you have done that, it's, it's difficult to identify with it. Let's say I'm a, a budding entrepreneur uh, in the health sector, but more generally, but let's focus on the health sector. Um, and I want to raise money from someone like you, a VC. Um, what tips would you have? What advice would you have? And what are you looking for in me? Well, I'll tell you what I'm looking for, but, but in general, I think, um, it is the type of courtship that takes some research and some preparation because it, it needs to be, um, more of a rifle shot or more of a, um, find, so I, I said earlier, Jumpstart is looking for um, pre-seed, seed A entrepreneurs building in these spaces. Um, 
I'm on this podcast. I'm on a bunch of podcasts. We put out information. We have a hundred portfolio companies. Um, it's pretty easy to see the type of investments we do. Um, and so if that fits with what an entrepreneur is doing, then they should reach out to us and we, you know, we want to engage. Um, it doesn't work well to do sort of a shotgun approach, right? So sending your executive summary, your business plan, or your information to, I don't know, 100 venture capitalists is less effective than taking the time to go figure out who are the five that would really fit with what I'm doing. And let me try to figure out who is their attorney, for instance. Every VC has one, two, three, four, five attorneys they work with. And that's often an easy way to get a warm introduction. And so it's, it's no more time, but I think it, uh, a lot of entrepreneurs get nervous about the smaller, the smaller opportunity set. And so they don't, they don't sort of commit to really learning about who are the five best and let me try to win an investment from those people. Instead, they just go like a, a mile wide and an inch deep and cover a lot of VCs, um, but they lose their opportunity with the five that they could have spent more time with and they kind of waste it with a bunch of people that are, are never, they don't do healthcare or they're not, they're doing later stage stuff or they're a debt provider. And so they don't, they're not gonna, they're not gonna do this deal. So it's counterintuitive, but I think spending more time research than makes your, your fundraising process more successful. So, so if I was going to choose that those top five VCs to, to pursue, what should I be looking for? I mean, what are the telltale signs of a good relationship? I mean, I think that it has to be the right um, chemistry or the right um, match. Mm -hmm. So if um, I, I would view it as uh, assume that you have multiple funding options. Options. You know, would you want to work with this this venture capitalist? And if the answer is uh, probably not, then you sh why bother, right? Like, it, I think it's it's a mindset of not desperation but abundance. And then you know, who is the profile? What what did I need from them besides money? Can they open doors for me? Can they help? I mean, we have a very very prescriptive process where you put companies through that you know, some founders love, other founders don't like. And so you should learn about that. And if, if that fits with you, then you could be great here. If it doesn't fit with you, you should, probably shouldn't take our capital because you're going to be not happy. Um, and so I think every VC has, has a style like that or has an industry niche that they focus on. Um, and so if you look into it, I think you can begin to tell, or you start talking to consultants and investment bankers and lawyers, and they will tell you, oh, you should go here, or you should go to this subset of VCs. Something that I um, often work with in terms of startups and eventually when they want to scale up perhaps and go international here in the UK they want to come to the states and then vice versa and when we yep. work in I think you and I maybe agree on this it's like when you're starting have the the internal you know that 
part of you wanting to go abroad, make sure that's planned from the start so that you design the business model and things in that respect early on. And I, I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, how you would compare um, entrepreneurship in the health sector between uh, you know, the UK and US health markets? I mean, it's, it's totally different and exactly the same. Right, so that, that's how I think about it. Like the, uh, the disease, the, the diagnostic uh, assessment and treatment of disease and getting patients to take their medications and exercise more or change behavior um, that is really core to healthcare, that's the same. Or like diabetic patient is treated the same in Manchester or London as they are in Atlanta or Boston. But the payment systems mm. are totally different. And so it, that, that's what I mean. Like it, it is a, it's the same set of things that you have to do to get the patient fixed or get them healthy. And yet the business model is, is often very different. And so that, that's kind of how I think about it. Like the, it's, there are aspects that are very similar and there are aspects that you have to totally reinvent it. And really it's based on, you know, NHS. And yeah, we don't have yeah. NHS and, and y'all do. And it's just a different, different system. It's interesting, Vic. Just a uh, just a side uh, story before I come back to you. Uh, I remember when I was in this in Atlanta, actually working at the CDC. Uh, I was called out as part of a response uh, to do a study in Alabama, so not too far from you, I guess. Yeah. And um, you know, we were thinking about how to get access to um, health records for the community for, to to do this uh, study to help them in terms of their health uh, and. Our initial, like at least for me, my initial take was, okay, not many people are going to have access to healthcare. Um, and funnily enough, they actually had access to free, you know, uh, public healthcare much better than many other parts of the states. I don't know how they've done it, but I guess it's, it varies by state over there. Um, so, okay, forget that story for a moment. I want to come back to you and just get a feel for trends. I was reading a market report. I can't remember who the author was, but uh, you know, the, the trends are all about health tech and digital, which I'm a fan of. I'm sure you are too. But what do you feel are the real trends in, in health innovation and entrepreneurship? Yeah, I mean, I think there's sort of two overarching trends and then many things that fall off that. So, so I, I see um, the delivery of care is is going through a generational change, right? Like the the way that we bring care to patients is changing dramatically, and so that then that falls to there's a lot more telehealth, there's a lot more health delivered to the to the neighborhood, uh, to a clinic in the neighborhood, or even to the home. There are um, different levels of licensure, so you don't have to have a physician doing all the work anywhere you can go down license. Um, I think that the boomer generation wants care in a different setting and delivered in a different way than the millennial generation wants it. Um, and so the, the care delivery systems are having to change almost 100% significantly 
to meet these requirements. And then the other half of the of the story is the payment methods, I think, at least in the US, are changing dramatically. But there's a lot more um, bundles, there's a lot more risk sharing, upside benefit and downside uh, risk if it doesn't, if the, if the treatment doesn't work out well. And we're moving maybe slowly, but I think it's accelerating from paying for a particular procedure, whether it helps or not. If you do this procedure, you get paid to more of an outcomes-based, what's termed as value-based uh, payment scheme. And so again, that has lots of fallout and many aspects of you need better information, you need more longitudinal data, you need different care settings. Uh, so those are the two big trends. And I think COVID has really accelerated both of those um, in you know, some ways that have been scary, but ways that have you know, been good for innovation. Right, Vic, I, I'd like to segue into learning a bit more about Jumpstart now, health investors, as well as your Jumpstart um, foundry. Um, I'm curious, like who who is your ideal? Because I know you've got a portfolio of about 100 or so startups. Who's your ideal entrepreneur slash startup and who are you looking for and how do you actually help them? Yeah, so we, we really approach uh, the task of bringing innovation from the entrepreneur's uh, head or from a coffee shop out to the marketplace, we want to be in that phase of the business. So I have named them Pre-Seed. So Jumpstart Foundry is our platform that makes a significant number. I think we'll make probably 35 investments in this coming year um, in the Pre-Seed space. So to me, Pre-Seed means uh, after your rich uncle has run out of money, uh, we're the first money that comes in that's not, you know, a family relative or, you know, a friend from, from where you used to work. Um, but we put very small amounts of money. It's usually 150 uh, USD, 150,000 USD. And the uh, company is just getting started. There might be two or three founders. Maybe they have a little bit of revenue. Maybe they really just are getting started. Um, and we want to help them successful but it's in the really early stage then we have seed and uh series a and that is sort of as you're beginning to get a little more momentum maybe you have seed you have a little bit of sales traction uh, but the business model is not fully fleshed out the team is not fully built out it's still a work in progress and series a you have a lot of things more developed but the company has to grow and so we have uh, Jumpstart Foundry as our brand for that really early stage. And then we have two different brands that would do the later stage. Uh, one is focused only on black founders. That's called Jumpstart Nova. Uh, so we, we have a fund dedicated to getting capital to uh, really talented black founders. They're traditionally underinvested in, you know, really really low investment in black founders. So we just dedicated a complete fund to that. It's run by my partner who's black um, and it only invests in, you can have other founders, but it has to be a black founder there. And then we have Jumpstart Capital, which is our broad base, sort of any, any other healthcare. Is there a specific problem that you would wish your startups or any entrepreneurs maybe approaching you would find innovative solutions for? 
Well, so one of our, our approaches to drive our own success rate is we work with um, the buyers, industry players. So large insurance companies, large healthcare companies, also retail, uh, like pharmacy and grocery, just to understand what do they need help with. And then we take that um, kind of product list or request list and go look for startups that are they're doing those things. Um, and so every year we update this. Um, I guess my pet project right now is that we, we all create a lot of, I'm gonna call it data exhaust or, or data that just going through our life, um, I'm gonna drive home tonight and I'll have my phone with me. It is tracking my GPS position along the, along the route uh, continuously. And then I step on a scale, I have a watch, I'm tracking my sleep. I have all these pieces that um, I don't actively do anything for, but they generate lots of data. Um, and I think there's an opportunity to absorb all that information and then do earlier diagnostics or kind of nudges, so less uh, harsh behavioral change, but just a slight nudge to make um, me a little bit more healthy or less unhealthy. Um, I think there's huge opportunity in those two areas to like catch things early. Um, and like we all drive cars or a lot of us drive cars. I want to check engine light for my health. Like right now, um, I don't get that. Like I have to wait until I have symptoms and then I go see the doctor and, you know, my health is already impaired. And so it would be nice to have a flashing light um, on my phone or somewhere that tells me, gosh, these, these data points seem, seem uh, to be concerning. You should check your engine, check your, check your health status. Uh, you know, the check engine light in the car is not useful if it goes off as your engine's exploding. It needs to go off ahead of time so you can drive to the to the mechanic. And I think we have plenty of data to do that. We have data science to do that. What we haven't seen and what entrepreneurs hopefully listening right now will come up with is how do you pull that all together into a user interface, into a way that I can interact with it that that's effective. So that's my pet uh, project. I've seen a few ideas. We've invested in a few ideas, but there's a there are hundreds of, of disease states or opportunities that we could look into. Absolutely. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And as a public health preventive medicine physician, I'm, I'm all for that. And I've actually come across a few that have been focusing in on these uh, bringing data from multiple sources, including wearables and, and others, um, where you use predictive, prescriptive analytics and machine learning, all these kinds of stuff to um, to help with lifestyle change, especially as well as earlier uh, detection of um, you know risk factors and disease. Yeah, I mean we're like right on the edge of possible, which is where I live. Or like that's where an entrepreneur will put it together. Um, three years from now, we'll have 20, 20 different tools like this. Um, and that'll be great for society. I want to invest in a few of them. Um, but I mean, the, the pace of change is really exciting. Um, there's a lot to absorb, but it's also exciting. 
uh, just to see sort of how fast health is in, is innovating. Yeah. And I think the final thing I'll say on that is obviously it's good to have a lot of data points, but it's all about turning that into meaningful intelligence. And then when you translate it into actions and advice that it's, as you said, it's like a car dashboard, but it doesn't become something that increases stress and anxiety along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. False positives are, are killer. We're like, right. if my check engine light goes off every day, uh, it's useless. But it only can go off when I need to address it. Yeah. And so getting that balance right um, is a challenge. But, but I think, like I say, I think we're on the edge of possible where it, yeah. it's the amount of data and the, the technology to take that noise and turn it into insight is like here right now, but it hasn't been applied in the best ways yet. Just on a fun note, just briefly, uh, Vic, you're based in, is it Nashville? Yeah, I'm in Nashville. Nashville and yeah. obviously, and you've, and we'll come on to one other area that you, you were, you know, uh, you grew up in. And for me, I'm, I'm a fan of whiskey. I'm putting this out there uh, as yeah. well as, <laughs> as well as Sam Adams beer, which is from the Boston area. Yeah. Um, I mean, you got, you got my whole background covered. I grew up in Boston <laughs> and here in city. Probably Kentucky is really the, the best bourbon in the world, but but Jack Daniels is in Tennessee, which is maybe one of the best brands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, so um, you need to come over, and we can we can take a tour and uh, and you know show you around, and maybe sample some of the local local fare. Yeah, that's a deal. I'm putting this out there. You don't yeah. be careful what you wish for. So I'd love to hear about you growing up in Boston, because obviously that's one of my favorite cities in the states, and I lived there for four years. Um, what led you to venture capital? I, I really didn't know much about venture growing up. I, I really liked science. Um, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Um, my dad was a football coach, and so uh, American football. So he um, was not really in business. Um, and I went to, went to university and was studying biology and chemistry and really kind of on a trajectory to become a doctor. Mm -hmm. And I did a couple internships during my undergrad experience, just kind of learning about medicine. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking these classes, but in the summertime, I uh, shadowed a surgeon and then also a kind of a clinic uh, setting. And kind of realized through that experience that the practice of medicine is fairly repetitive. It's uh, if you're an orthopedic surgeon, which I thought I wanted to be, um, it's a lot of the same knee operation or shoulder operation, kind of over and over and over again. And I, some people love that. I felt it uh, was pretty monotonous. It's kind of I mean, it, the first hip replacement surgery I saw was you know life changing, incredible, his blood everywhere, and it's really interesting. Um, but by the end of the summer, I had seen, you know, a lot of the same surgery over and over again. Um, and so I got out of undergrad and made the decision that I didn't want to go to med school. Um, I wanted to try something else. Medical school is, of course, a big commitment. And it didn't seem like something you should go into if you didn't want to maybe be a doctor. 
And so I got out of undergrad, uh, you know, well qualified for a career I wasn't sure I wanted. Um, and my dad said, that, that's, um, that's great, you know, understand, fully supportive, but a paid for university and you have two weeks to get out of my house. And, you know, maybe a little bit nicer, but there was a particular day, and it was like June 10th or something of, of 1993, you have to go find an apartment and, you know, you can come over and visit, but you need a place to, to live. And so I had to find a job. And so I, I didn't know anything about entrepreneurship um, or venture, but I found a job at a startup and uh, I was not at all qualified for it. It was a... It was a uh, fintech startup in Boston, really selling software to the uh, mutual fund industry. And I was the third employee. We didn't have a name for the company yet. It was like in the back office of a headhunter uh, in Boston. And it just seemed fun. And, you know, they would pay me a little bit so I could have a place to live. Um, and I was tasked with working with all the developers, um, even though I didn't really know how to code myself, I was sort of there, um, their translator, sort of talk to the business people and explain to the tech guys what to build. And I had to be that liaison between the business folks and the guys that like to sit in dark rooms and code all day. And it, you know, it was pretty fun. I didn't know anything about what I was doing, uh, but that's the fun of a startup is I believed in our ability to sort of learn it faster than our clients. Um, and I got to do lots of things over a couple of years that, you know, we have to figure out as we go. We got to fly the plane like, as we're building it. And it was it was a lot of fun. So after uh, seven years, I was there seven years, we sold the business in the dot-com craziness. Um, and I had to figure out, okay, you know, that was a fun adventure. Made some money, made a lot of friends, learned about entrepreneurship. Uh, kind of from the inside, not sure, like definitely not going to go to med school, but I didn't know what to do next. And we were venture backed. And so I kind of looked at it and realized, you know, I'd, so I moved to Atlanta and opened an office uh, in 96, I guess. So I'd fly to Boston and would have board meetings with the VCs. It was Boston based. Um, and it seemed like, you know, they'd have a steak dinner and a fun board dinner and then a half day meeting the next day talking about the 6, 18, 36 month strategy. What are we doing? What are our competitors doing? And I really liked that uh, thought, uh, intellectual kind of thought experiment of strategy. Uh, and then I'd fly back to Atlanta and do the kind of the day to day grind of growing a small, but, but, you know, high tech company. And presumably the VCs have a new company coming in that, you know, they get to float on this quarter to quarter strategy and not do any work. And so I decided that seems like the grass is greener over there. And this was in uh, 99, 2000. So VC was sort of exploding all the startups were exploding. And so I went to business school to figure out the finance and accounting kind of aspects of the business and kind of pivoted over to the venture side. And so I think that, you know, that the experience of doing a startup and then kind of trading teams, I think helps me 
identify with the founders a little bit more. Oh, I didn't realize you you also lived in Atlanta, kind of like me. And so, yeah, okay, so we've got something in common. Yeah, I've been following you around. <laughs> or the other way around, who knows? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. so hopefully I'll be in uh, Nashville at some point soon. And, and you went to Vanderbilt, didn't you, for business school? That's right, yeah. So, so I got to Nashville because my then-girlfriend, now wife, was in school at Vanderbilt. And so I looked around, but but there was a really cute girl that was in school at Vanderbilt. And so all of a sudden they had a really good, they had a great program because, because Wendy was here. And then they also have a good program. But so I, I came to Vanderbilt and um, really didn't know much about Nashville. That's where Vanderbilt was, um, but spent a lot of time trying to break into the venture business while in school. Because uh, there's not a lot of VCs, as I mentioned before, it's, they don't hire a lot of people. And so I spent time in class, but spent a lot of time um, outside of class, working with local firms, trying to learn. There's like this Wizard of Oz curtain that, you know, all this fancy stuff happens behind the curtain and no one who's not an adventurer can go behind the curtain. And so I, I spent a lot of time trying to break into the backstage and understand how it works. And that ended up with me getting a job here in Nashville. So I've been here in Nashville since 2000. 